Son of a bitch, what's up everybody? How y'all doing today? It does seem like things are slowly falling apart, doesn't it? (laughs) I do believe so. I do believe so. Um, I will have a lot on that topic, as well as many other topics. Um, I got some final numbers from Nate Silver, or actually I shouldn't say final, almost final numbers from Nate Silver that um, tell an interesting story that we'll dive into. Um, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be a little surprised as to the downsides of this election. I mean, it really is. It's something else when you see just how pathetic the underperformance was by the Democrats. You're going to be like, whoa, this is fucking crazy. So um going to have a lot to say about that. We also have chaos unfolding in Washington, D.C., investigations into the election, even though it's not, it's kind of absurd and ridiculous. Um, we have, we'll talk a little bit about Kanye West. I'll tell you how he fared in the election. I have some final numbers when it comes to him. Joe Manchin runs to Fox News to reassure the world that he doesn't want to change anything and he will not change anything. That he will basically function as a Republican vote in the Senate. If that story doesn't piss you off, then nothing is going to piss you off. Um, Trump fired senior officials at the Pentagon in a super sketchy move. Um, And I I also, I forgot to tell you, I have a couple more ballot initiatives that are super important that I want to tell you about. So, without further ado, let's get started and uh, dive into these 
somewhat final numbers. Here we go. Nate Silver tweeted something that I find absolutely fascinating, and uh, it should really, really humble you because it paints a picture that's a little bit different from the one that has been uh, force-fed to us for months now. So he says, estimates of the polling error in swing states making educated guesses about what the final numbers will look like in states that aren't done counting yet. So this is how, how the polls swung coming into Election Day. So in other words, the, the average of the polls and then what the actual votes were. Wisconsin, Trump plus eight. He overperformed the polls by eight points. Iowa, Trump plus seven. Florida, Trump plus six. Michigan, Trump plus five. Texas, Trump plus five. Ohio, Trump plus five. New Hampshire, Trump plus four. Maine, Trump plus three. Pennsylvania, Trump plus three. North Carolina, Trump plus two. Nevada, Trump plus two. Minnesota, Trump plus two. Virginia, Trump plus two. Arizona, Trump plus two. New Mexico, Trump plus one. Georgia, Trump plus one. Colorado, the only one that was Biden plus one. The only one. Even though Joe Biden won this election, and don't get it twisted, he did, Trump still had a 2016-style surge in the polls. He outperformed his polling numbers in a gargantuan way. That absolutely should humble you, for sure. Now, why? Why? How did this happen? You know, that's the question. And I've seen some speculation on it. I don't know how much I buy the, uh, the reasoning that I've read. So some people are saying it has to do with lockdown, COVID lockdown, and people being inside. And a lot of liberals were bored, so they were doing more polls and surveys than conservatives were. That seems like a feeble excuse to me. Honestly, the more likely scenario, in my opinion, is that there really is just a perpetual um, shy Trump vote, that there's some percentage of Trump supporters who just won't tell pollsters that they support Trump for whatever reason. Maybe it's the social circle that they're in. Um, They're afraid of how that's perceived and how that comes across. I mean, there's a number of reasons why you could be a shy Trump voter, but, you know, the phenomenon that makes sense to me is that there's just a perpetual shy Trump contingent. Um, Again, it's not enough for Trump to win the election, but it certainly was enough for him to have a 2016-style surge. See, the difference is Hillary had a four-point cushion going into Election Day in 2016. Biden had an eight-point cushion. So if he had just a four-point cushion, President Trump would have gotten reelected. But he had an eight-point cushion, so it's enough for him to win and win with 306 electoral votes. But the margins in the states uh, that he needed are slimmer than everybody thought they were going to be. I told you guys, you know, I looked at the polls. I thought they accurately um, adjusted from 2016 and that the polls were going to be spot on because the polls were spot on in the 2018 midterms. So I thought that they nailed it and it would be 351 electoral votes for Biden. Uh, I said worst-case scenario, 320 for Biden. The final number is going to be Biden 306. So he's going to underperform what I thought was the worst case scenario. And Nate Silver is detailing for us 
hey, here's how everything swung going into Election Day, the polling average versus the actual votes. And it, it really is astonishing. It really is astonishing. So he, he did what he did in 2016, and it just wasn't enough to win. There was that pro-Trump surge, and it just wasn't enough to win. This is really incredible. And I, listen, I do also say, this part is obviously just my opinion, but I think that, yeah, something like this happening, I'm not surprised about because it's not like Biden and the Democrats were running good campaigns. And by the way, the Democrats did horrendous when it came to the House and when it comes to the Senate. There was 75% chance they were going to take the Senate. They're probably not going to take the Senate now. Abysmal. But like Joe Biden wasn't really running on anything. He was hiding. Now, hiding was not a bad approach. It's possible that if he campaigned more, he would have lost because then people would see how much he's in cognitive decline. So that may have been the right strategy. In fact, I was calling for him to do that the entire time. But in terms of the actual substance of what they were campaigning on, I mean, the best part about it was just the we're better on COVID. That was the most salient argument coming from the Biden camp. But outside of that, listen, we're in a pandemic and they're not even for Medicare for all. They're not even for universal health care in the middle of a pandemic where tens of millions of people are losing their insurance. I mean, that's, you know, unforgivable. Not running on Medicare for all, not running on abolishing student loan debt, not running on a Green New Deal or a New New Deal colossal infrastructure project. It really was the half measure campaign, the corporate campaign, the let's go back to normal campaign. Now, again, that was enough. But in some ways, this is the, the perfect way for it to unfold because it shows you that there really are hard limits when you don't really believe in anything. When you don't really believe in anything and your campaign is, I'm not that guy, that's only going to get you so far because everybody can kind of sense how full of shit you are. Everybody can kind of sense that there's nothing at the core of what you're arguing for. There's nothing there. There's no there there. It's just like, yeah, this guy's really bad, right? Yeah, I mean, he is really bad. Okay, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? You have no other option. What are you going to do? So he did it, man. Trump did it. Trump had that 2016-style surge. Trump massively outperformed the polls. And, uh, you know, I was reminded of a, a tweet from Sean King, and he was like, people were making fun of me for this, but I mean it in all seriousness. Whatever the polls are for Trump, add four. Whatever the polls are for Trump, always add four nationally and in the respective states. Kind of turned out to be exactly right. And he was saying this before the election, and then he said it on the election. He's like, look, this is my rule. My rule is you add four. They just couldn't account for that entire shy Trump vote. Now, what do you do moving forward? See, that's a difficult question. That's a difficult question because, I mean, if Trump's no longer on the ballot, and actually generic Republicans outperform Trump, right? But if Trump's no longer on the ballot, do you have that same kind of shy Republican vote phenomenon, I don't know. I don't know. What I can tell you is, in previous elections, the, the polling was more accurate. So Nate Silver, you know, he very famously got, I think it was the 2008 states exactly right, and the 2012 states only got like one or two wrong in the, in the presidential election. Um, or maybe it was vice versa. Maybe it was one or two wrong in the 2008 race and then everything right in 2012. Like, he got everything pretty much spot on. And... Um, you know, it's just it's been harder to predict in the Trump era because you got to have the correct model. So the, the issue could be with your premise up front. If you accept the premise, then, you know, everything that follows from it is going to be accurate. But the issue sometimes with the premise 
And I think what they did is they adjusted for education level, which they didn't have in 2016. Um, and they used the 2016 turnout numbers for 2020, which again should have been a more pro-Trump correction, but whatever the correction was, it wasn't enough. And just so everybody knows, Trump actually expanded his vote share in 2020. So four years of Donald Trump and all the colossal mess and everything going to hell and the terrible decisions he made governing like a standard establishment Republican, doing tax cuts for the wealthy, deregulation, continuing the wars, after four years of Trump, Trump expanded his vote share. And interestingly enough, you know where he really made his gains? Among minorities. Among minorities. It was, uh, some gain among black people, but more gain among Latinos and, and women, too. There was, you know, he, he turned out more in terms of women. Um, he lost among suburbanites. So basically, the older upper middle class white suburbanites like in Arizona, for example, in the Sun Belt, they broke for Biden more. So he lost among his core constituency and gained among minorities, interestingly enough. And again, increased his vote count. He got, aside from Joe Biden, obviously, who's winning popular vote by millions, he got the second most votes in U.S. history. More than Obama 08, more than Obama 2012. Now, population, I'm sure, has gone up since then. So, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly an apples-to-apples comparison, but this is a phenomenon that we need to think about, and it's not going to go away. And you can't just act like, well, they're all racist, they're all sexist, they're all bigots. So swat them aside and let's move forward. No. We have to really study this, understand it, so we can adjust accordingly moving forward. Because it's real. This stuff is real as a heart attack. He outperformed the polls yet again. And so, you know, the smug liberal arrogance is not an asset to the left-wing project or even the democratic project. So there you have it, man. Really is a wild story. Really is a wild story. He had the 2016 style surge. He outperformed the polls. Just wasn't enough to get him across the finish line. And um, we're going to have to contend with this. And pollsters are going to have to look in the mirror. And the Democrats are going to have to look in the mirror to figure out how to stop this decline. And the reality is, again, when your whole message is just, I'm not that guy, that's only going to get you so far. And it was far enough, but it's not as far as it should have been. Next. Fox host Neil Cavuto lost it at the Trump administration uh, because they're downplaying the election. They're downplaying the results. They're trying to obfuscate and deflect and honestly outright lie as well. Take a look. You don't oppose our efforts at sunlight and transparency because you have nothing to hide. You take these positions because you are welcoming fraud and you are welcoming illegal voting. Our position is clear. We want to protect the franchise of the American people. We want an honest, accurate, lawful count. 
We want maximum sunlight. We want maximum transparency. We want every legal vote to be counted, and we want every illegal vote. Well, 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 I just think we have to be very clear. She's charging uh, the other side is welcoming fraud and welcoming illegal voting. Unless she has more details to back that up, I can't in good countenance continue showing you this. I want to make sure that maybe they do have something to back that up. But that's an explosive charge to make that the other side is effectively rigging and cheating. Uh, if she does bring proof of that, of course, we'll take you back. So far, she has started saying right at the outset, welcoming fraud, welcoming illegal voting. Not so fast. The anti-cancel culture crowd, the anti-snowflake crowd, by the way, responded to this by calling for Neil Cavuto to be fired. I saw a number of tweets from people not with small followings, rather large Twitter followings, saying you got to fire Neil Cavuto. What happened? I thought you guys were against cancel culture. I thought you guys were against snowflakes. You are doing cancel culture, and you are the snowflake. Now, what he's saying here, just so everybody understands, is not controversial at all. Like, see, this is the thing that I'm astounded by. If they were going to contest the election when Biden has 306 electoral votes and he's up by millions of votes, they were going to contest it no matter what. No matter what. If Biden had 320 votes, they're going to contest. If Biden won 412 votes and won Texas, they would absolutely contest it. And if anything, they would view that as even more fuel to the fire to say, oh, really? The Democrat won Texas? I'm supposed to believe that? And so there was no situation where Trump wouldn't contest it because he has no idea how to handle rejection. And he's an empty, vapid husk of a man, a shell of a human being. And he's got enough people around him who are willing to do his bidding and say ridiculous things like she is, whatever her name is, McEnany. How, how, how do you have a name, and I struggle to pronounce the first and the last? <laughs> like, it's one thing, okay, I get it, like, maybe one of the two I'll struggle because I'm not that great at, at pronouncing stuff, but Kaylee, Kaylee, McEnany, whatever. Um, so Joe Biden is up by about, right now, as I'm talking to you guys, by about 5 million votes, by about 3.1% or so. Now, when all the votes are counted, because we're not done with New York, we're not done with California, that's going to add to his popular vote lead, Joe Biden will have won the election by about 5%, anywhere from 4% to 5%. Now, that's an underperformance. He should have, 8 is what he was up in the polls. So if the polls were correct, he would have won by 8%. He's going to win by about 4%, right? But that's not, that is a colossal victory, objectively speaking. Like, if you told me in 2018, it's going to be Joe Biden versus Trump, and Biden's going to win by millions of votes by about 4%, and he's going to have 306 electoral votes, that's a comfortable win. That's not close. And so what they're doing is incredibly confusing, because what are you going to do? The four states that it really comes down to, Joe Biden, even in a recount scenario, he could lose two of the four and still win the election. So what are you going to do? Their best hope is Georgia, where Biden's up like 15,000 votes. That's as close as they get in any of the states. You're not going to find 15,000 instances of voter fraud in Georgia. And that's your closest state. Then you got Arizona. It's a little bit more, right? What are you going to do? You're going to somehow win Georgia and Arizona and still lose the, lose the um, Electoral College. So then what? What are you going to do? Pennsylvania, his lead, when all said and done, is going to be about 80,000 to 100,000 votes. You're nowhere close, son. You're nowhere close. So they're not even like, guys, we should all be 
incredibly happy that this isn't like the year 2000 where it was like 270 or 271 electoral votes and it all came down to one state because if it came down to one state they would you know use all of their resources and try to do anything they can to steal it it's just that biden you know they're up in four really important states and it's somewhat comfortable so there's just not enough there for them to raise a stink enough and to marshal enough resources and to actually overthrow it but they're trying with this utter nonsense. And what I'm amazed by is how at every, at every step the argument is bullshit. So, like she's saying, oh, we just care about sunlight and transparency. That's what we care about. Why are the, why are the Democrats against it? Nobody's against sunlight and transparency. When they count the votes, they always have Democrats and Republicans in the room. Always. Always. Every single time. So when you say, oh, you're not letting us in to look, there's no sunlight, there's no transparency, there are Republicans in the room. They're already there. So what do they mean? What they mean is allow their, you know, their rambunctious, unhinged, insane crowds of rabidly pro-Trump, don't care about democracy crowd to get in there, stand six feet away and harass the vote counters. That's what, you know, Democrats have an issue to. Do I want Rudy Giuliani and Pam Bondi and Corey Lewandowski standing six feet away from people trying to count votes? Do I trust them? Fuck no, I don't trust them. Do I trust a generic Democrat and a generic Republican? And should there be Democrats and Republicans in the room when they count? Of course there should be. And there are. But you see what they're doing here? They're just trying to obfuscate. They're just trying to raise doubt about the election. But every single step of the way, they're making bullshit arguments. This idea of, oh, we want to count every legal vote, but we don't want to count the illegal votes. As if Democrats were like, you know, we really should count the illegal votes. That's what I think. What illegal votes? What are you talking about? This idea, and Trump said this in 2016 too, oh, there were hundreds of thousands or millions of illegal immigrants who voted. Really? Really? Have you ever driven behind somebody in, in, a, in a beaten down car and the speed limit is 30 and they're going like 26 miles an hour? And you peek in and you're, hmm, okay. Usually, and this has happened to me a number of times, it's an undocumented immigrant. And the reason they're going less than 30 miles an hour is because they don't want to get pulled over and they don't want to get deported. What undocumented immigrant in their right mind would say, I really don't want to get caught and deported, so let me go show up to vote as if I'm a citizen? It simply doesn't happen. We have numbers on this. They've done studies on this. Voter fraud is nearly non-existent. In fact, the biggest problem is the exact opposite. The biggest problem is voter disenfranchisement, which gets to what Kaylee's saying here. Because when you say, I want to count every legal vote and every illegal vote, what does she mean when she says illegal vote? I'll tell you. She means what they try to do in all these Republican states. They will take the mail-in votes and go through it with a fine-tooth comb and use anything and everything to reject it and say it's illegitimate. So, for example, if your name on the ballot, if your name on your license has your middle initial and your name on the ballot does not have your middle initial, well, sorry, that might not be you. We're going to throw it out. This happens with me, guys. I have on some government documents, I have my middle initial. On other government documents, I don't have my middle initial. Like credit cards, whatever. It, it varies from place to place because sometimes I just say Kyle Kalinske. Sometimes, yeah, my, I, I throw my middle initial out there, say my middle name as well. So it's, it's mixed everywhere I go. Everywhere I go from, different, from document to document. If it's not lined up properly for voting, they're going to throw it out. They're going to throw it out. They're looking for excuses, ladies and gentlemen, to throw out these ballots by any means necessary. Oh, my God, you put it in the envelope, but you didn't put it in the envelope within the envelope, so that's illegitimate. That's what's called a naked ballot, throw it out. This is the stuff that they do. 
So when they talk about, oh, we want to count every legal vote and throw out every illegal vote, they're the con artists. They're the fraudsters. They're the ones who are undermining democracy. And Neil Cavuto, to his credit, every now and then he has a moment. Usually he doesn't, but this is one of those instances where he's like, come on, man, you can't, do, you can't just go out there and you know, throw around these wild accusations. And Trump, I mean, it's insane to watch him every single day on Twitter deny the legitimacy of the election, downplay it, repeat it over and over and over and over and over. Dude, you lost, and it wasn't even that close. Let it go. Let it go. Even Fox News can't go along with him. I saw this with Brett Baer, too. There were instances where Brett Baer was like, well, the Republicans are saying this, and uh, I can't. That's, I, even I can't fucking cover that up. It's getting ridiculous, guys. It's getting ridiculous. Count every legal vote, but not every illegal vote. The idea that you're going to find a way to overturn three or four swing states where Biden has a somewhat comfortable lead, what are you going to do? Are you going to do it with a popular vote, too? Biden's up at least five million right now. It's going to be more. Somehow all those five million are fake. It's just, it's childish. It's childish. These are unserious people. And it's hilarious that these are the same people who talk about bringing democracy to the rest of the world. Same administration, same neocon goons. These are the same people who would talk about, oh, well, let's judge what's happening in Venezuela or Bolivia or anywhere else, fill in the blank. These people who would throw out democracy like that if they could get their way. It's really dishonest and it's gross. We want sunlight and transparency. It exists and you lost. It exists and you lost. We want to count every legal vote, but not every illegal vote. In other words, let's try to find a way to take ballots which should be counted and throw them out for any BS reason. Middle initial wasn't within the envelope, within the envelope, you know. Oh, it was mailed on election day, but it arrived after election day. Therefore, hey, maybe it actually wasn't put in on election day. Throw that one out, too. This is what they're trying to do. Because Republicans know the lower the turnout, the more likely it is that the Republican wins. And that's also why they're trying to do it specifically in cities. They want to do it in cities because cities are overwhelmingly more Democratic. Interesting. They only want to throw out the votes in the places where they know it's going to help Biden where Biden won it. Frauds, con artists, every last one of them. You lost Neil Cavuto and you lost Fox News. You've gone so far, even they are like, Jesus Christ, man, give it a rest. All right, next. We have some chaos unfolding in Washington, D.C., unsurprisingly. Don Jr. accuses head of the Department of Justice Election Crimes Unit of being deep state after he resigns in protest over Bill Barr authorizing prosecutors to pursue substantial allegations of voter fraud despite little evidence. William Barr sent a memo to allow federal prosecutors to investigate substantial allegations of voter fraud within hours Richard Pilger, Pilger, however you say that, Justice Department official, who oversees investigations of voter fraud, resigned. Trump's son, Don Jr., was quick to criticize Pilger online and accuse him of being a member of the deep state. The president has vowed to fight the expected electoral defeat in the courts. Q 
cute that they're saying it's expected. He lost. There's no way he's going to win. And by the way, I know people who are scared by this because they see Trump trying to make it seem like there's still a chance and there's still a thing going on. It's donezo, son. It's over. It's over. If they do anything to have him stay in power, if he stays in power, that, it literally it was a coup. Literally. That was a coup. That's what that is. That's what that is. And, you know, our rich history in this country is destroyed. And the whole idea of, like, sucking ourselves off for how great we are with the peaceful transition to power, that would be done. It would have died with a New York real estate con man, celebrity game show host. Okay? So it, it's over. It's done. Anyway. So now what's going on here? Bill Barr was like, oh, yeah, we're going to open up an investigation into um, – allegations of substantial voter fraud. This person who worked under him, them resigning, I think what that means is this is this is absurd. There are no there's no widespread evidence of voter fraud. You're not going to overturn hundreds of thousands or millions of votes. This is ridiculous. And so they're stepping down because they don't want to be part of what is effectively a sham investigation. So I think it was a principled, like, I'm not going to take part in what I view as the destruction of our democracy in some ways. I think that's why that person stepped down. Now, I'm guessing, but I think that's why that person stepped down. Now, to Bill Barr, because this is being perceived in different ways from different crowds. Some people are saying, oh, my God, here he is trying to do Trump's dirty work for him. By the way, there's a there's this rich history and tradition for the Department of Justice to stay out of elections, and whenever there's issues, you leave it up to the states. But now the Department of Justice is getting involved, which means the federal government is getting involved in the uh, election, which overturns the history and the tradition of it. And so some people are saying, here we go. This is evidence of Trump basically attempting a coup and trying to do it by any means necessary. If you go through Bill Barr and you try to muck up fake allegations of fraud, then this is one way to bring that about. So one crowd is basically hair on fire panicking and saying, sweet Jesus, this is really like a a slow motion coup that's happening right in front of us. Now, the other crowd says, and I've seen people, this is not straight partisan line. This is, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And on this one, there are strange bedfellows. The other crowd is saying, no, you idiot. What's happening is Bill Barr is giving the Republican base something to hang on to to raise, help raise money for the Georgia special elections. So in other words, they don't want the wind out of their sails by acknowledging that Trump is defeated and that's the end of it. They want to give people in the Republican base that hope. So they're doing this. That'll help them raise money for the Georgia special elections. Um, but more importantly... This could be Bill Barr just keeping Trump off of his ass, keeping Trump off of his ass because he could say to Trump now, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm doing everything I can. I'm investigating all the claims of voter fraud. I'm investigating it. I'm on your side, dog. I'm on your side. Now, in reality, if they're being honest, the investigation will yield nothing. It's not going to yield anything. There's already been a couple of bullshit claims of voter fraud, and then the second people looked under the hood, they were like, oh, that's actually total bullshit. What they were claiming is not true. One of them was Trump accused some people of voter fraud. Turns out they were in the military, and then they had moved 
where they were living. And so that wasn't voter fraud. It was just military people who had moved. Like, everything that they point to, it winds up being bullshit. But anyway, if Bill Barr does this, then he can turn around to Trump and say, I'm on your side, dog. I'm doing everything you want. I'm investigating the claims of voter fraud. But then when all said and done, he says, Sorry, after January 5th, when there's the special election, right, after Georgia, then he goes, oh, I, I looked, I, I couldn't find anything, man. I couldn't find anything. Turns out it's over. Biden's the president-elect. You got to move on. So there are two ways of interpreting it. One way is, oh, my God, he's interfering in the election. This is overturning um, tradition and history and precedent. And he's interfering on the side of Trump, and they're going to try to muck up something and do a slow-motion coup. That's one argument. The other argument is, no, he's really just placating Trump, first and foremost, to keep him off his ass and also giving the Republican base hope with the January 5th special election in Georgia coming up. Um, which camp am I in? I don't know. I, I'm just agnostic. I don't know what the hell is happening, guys. I don't know how many times I could say this. I've said it in, in the context of other conversations as well. I, I can't keep up with everything that's going on. My mind can't keep up with everything. I'm just looking around. I feel like it's chaos. I feel like I'm a passenger and I'm watching like, you know, a car crash happen in slow motion. And I'm like, oh my God, there's, I feel like helpless to try to change the outcome of anything. I feel like I'm watching a movie, and it's an insane movie, and it keeps getting crazier and crazier. I don't know. I have no idea what Bill Barr is doing. Um, but either way, even if it is the thing where he's placating Trump, either way, you're playing some dirty, gross politics here, man. This is, this is really not good. And, and when you look at Trump and how he's not hinting even a little bit that he's going to accept the results of the election, and we'll get to it later, but he's making moves, firing certain people in top positions at the Pentagon and putting his own loyalists in there. I do not like the look of it. I do not like the look of it at all. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not going to make a prediction. I'm not going to say what's going to happen. But either way, this should concern you. Either way, this should concern you. Even if it's purely a political move and to placate Trump, um, that's bad enough. Or if it's actually they're gonna they're up to something nefarious, that's obviously horrendous as well. So, and I don't see the Democrats responding much. Like you have Trump, and then you have a bunch of his cronies—not all of them, but a bunch of his cronies—literally like, no, I don't. We're not acknowledging the election. And the Democrats are just moving along as if there's people not saying that. They're acting like everybody's kind of accepting the legitimacy of it. And it's just weird that we live in the, like this parallel, these parallel universes. We're watching this happen. Where one, they're trying to act like everything is normal. The other one is like, he's acting like some tin pot dictator. So, I'll keep you guys updated, but just know I'm watching and holding my breath as well. All right, next. Interesting new poll results just dropped. Take a look at this. The overwhelming majority of Americans say President-elect Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election amid unsubstantiated cries of fraud from President Trump, according to a Reuters-Ipsos poll released Tuesday. The survey, conducted from Saturday afternoon to Tuesday, 
showed 79% of U.S. adults believe Biden is the winner of the presidential election. Approximately 60% of Republicans said Biden won. Major news outlets called the race for Biden on Saturday afternoon after he was projected to win Pennsylvania in his 20 electoral votes. Trump has thus far refused to concede defeat, waging lawsuits in multiple battleground states. Most legal experts say these lawsuits will uh, accomplish a little to nothing, in part due to the lack of evidence presented so far. On Tuesday, Biden called Trump's refusal to concede an embarrassment. So I think they're messing up the headline a little bit here. They're burying the lead a little bit here. 79% or 80% of the country saying, yeah, the guy who won the election won the election. That's not enough. And that's not the most important part. The most important part is apparently... 21% of the country says he didn't win. More importantly, 40% of Republicans say he didn't win. Almost half of Republicans, 40% of Republicans are like, no, he didn't didn't win. Let's review. You have the election. You have in many of these states, the the on-the-day votes counted first, so it looks like Trump's ahead. Then the mail-ins start getting counted in a lot of these states. Biden shoots into the lead. Now you have a situation where he's going to get 306 electoral votes. Even if by some miracle there's a recount and Trump wins Georgia, then Biden still wins 290 or 291. It's not even that close. Like, yes, Biden underperformed the polls, but that's because the polls had him in a landslide with 351 electoral votes. He wins 306. He underperformed the polls, but it's still a comfortable victory. In fact, it's literally about the same size that Trump's win over Hillary was in 2016. And Trump called that a landslide when it was him. Now, Trump won the Electoral College and lost the popular vote. Biden's going to win the Electoral College and win the popular vote. Win the popular vote by about 5%. Right now, he's up like 5 million votes. He's going to be up by 5%, likely by the end of it, 4 to 5%. So, in other words, it's not even really that close. And every network called it. Because every network is going, listen, the numbers are what they are. The data is what it is. You know, they're fine with you know, weaving a partisan narrative over on Fox News. But when it butts up against something this stark, this reality-based, this close to home in terms of who we are as a nation, they're not going to – what are they going to do? They're going to go out there? Some of them, I guess, Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity are out there playing the game, pretending like, oh, it's not over yet. But all the other hosts, anybody who has a shred of integrity is like, obviously, it's over. Who are we kidding? 40% of Republicans. 40%. 40%. Like, no, it's not, it's not over. No. Biden didn't win. I don't know what you're talking about. By the way, we found our number of TFGs. Apparently, the number of TFGs is 21% of the country, but about 40% of Republicans. Listen, Hey, at least we get to say a majority of Republicans are reachable. 60% of Republicans, there's hope for. 40% of Republicans, there's no hope for. There's no getting through these people. There's no getting through to them. There's no getting through to 21% of the country. My guess is that same 21% overlaps with a bunch of other really wild beliefs. That's my guess. My guess is you probably get about the same who believe that, you know, evolution isn't real and Adam and Eve was real and... You know, I'm sure it would overlap with some funky beliefs that you'd look at like, what? 
But there you have it. These are the numbers. And I do think that that should be the headline. The headline should be 21% of the country rejects the legitimacy of the election or 40% of Republicans reject the legitimacy of the election. If they're not going to be convinced at this point, there's just literally nothing they would be convinced by. And it actually makes me think about how we're kind of living in a little bit of a a postmodern era where there is no such thing as truth. You weave your own narrative. And as long as you push it relentlessly, you can move people on it. See, my guess is if Trump wasn't sowing doubt about the election and he wasn't doing it from second number one relentlessly, then you'd probably have 95% of the country saying, yeah, it's over. And 5% saying, yeah, maybe not. And who knows what the hell is going on with that 5%, right? Like that they're, they got other issues. But since Trump was sowing doubt from second number one and he's done it relentlessly, he's moved the numbers. So you have, you know, 40% of the Republican Party, 21% of the country. These are the, whatever daddy says, I'm game for it. And there is a very deep authoritarian streak in that too, isn't there? There really is. And I do get the sense that that is something, there are authoritarian left people, there are, they exist. But I do think that it's a little bit more baked into the cake of the right. It's a little bit more foundational to who they are. And my evidence for that actually is One America News Network. So think about it. When we talk about how, oh my God, MSNBC is not doing their job right, They're supposed to be the left network. They're not the left network. So who are the people who are outdoing MSNBC at their own game and actually being a left network? Well, me. You know, I think of myself as on the left, and I cover news and politics, and there's other lefties online who do the same. But notice something. To out-left MSNBC, what do we do? We care more about policy. We care more about getting health care for everybody, labor unions, a Green New Deal, legalizing marijuana. We're more policy-based. What does it mean to outright a network? What does that mean? So there are people who look at Fox News and go, they're, they're on the left. We don't like them. So what does One American News Network do? They're not going to the right of Fox on policy. They're going to the right of Fox in terms of how sycophantic they are to the dear leader, which is textbook authoritarianism. It's not like, oh, my God, we're us here at One America News Network, we're the principled conservatives, and here's what we're fighting for on the issues. No. Their network is, oh, my God, Fox is too anti-Trump. We're even more pro-Trump. So it's foundational to the right that the more you get to the, to the Republican base, to the conservative base, the more sycophantic they are to the dear leader, the more they fall in line for the authoritarian, even when he says something like, I didn't lose the election, and he did lose the election. of the Republican base, 40% of Republican voters, 21% of the country. People are like, yeah, whatever he says, I'm with him. I don't care that it's factually wrong. I'm with him. So that authoritarian streak, it's just they're extra sycophantic. They can't wait to fall in line behind an authority figure. That's what it means to outright Fox News. Again, with, with the left, to out left MSNBC, All of us on YouTube who do that, we care more about policy. It's not like like when Obama's president, the people who outleft MSNBC are more sycophantic to Obama. No. The people who outleft MSNBC say, why are you guys so sycophantic to Obama? You've got to care about the issues. The ones going to the right of Fox News are just more sycophantic to authority, fall in line more for Donald Trump. And honestly, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing because then you get to some weird places, man. 
you get to some weird places. My guess is there's nothing that Trump could do where he would lose this 40% of the Republican base, 21% of the country. There's nothing. He could announce, we're going to do a mass extermination program of undocumented immigrants. We're going to kill them. And these people are like, shouldn't have came here. Shouldn't have came here illegally. Should have done the right thing. What are you going to do? That might sound extreme, but no. This is If you read the book, I believe it's called Ordinary Men. They kind of explain how, yeah, you can get otherwise ordinary people to do horrendous things. If you just make it the system and make the trusted authority figures act like it's normal. I mean, again, if you're willing to just say, no, Biden didn't win. What? What are you talking about? Of course he did. No, we just, we don't care what actually happened in the real world. We view, they view themselves as better people the more they're subservient to the authority figure. So they think it's more moral to be like, no, Trump, the president, my daddy says this, I'm I'm, I'm with him. 21% of the country, 40% of the Republican base. There's your TFGs. Will I be apologizing for that fact? No, because it's not me, it's them. It's not me, it's them. Sorry. It's not me, it's them. I have hope for the 60%? Sure. Sure, 60% of Republicans, it is possible to reach them. 40%, you ain't getting through. doesn't matter how good your arguments are, how convincing you are, how nice you are. None of that matters. None of that matters. Because if they're the type of people who are willing to look at what unfolded and say, no, it's not over, and uh, Biden didn't win, they will believe absolutely anything. And that's really scary. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Kanye West. I'm going to tell you about Kanye West and um, how many votes he got. And then we'll also give you AOC is the new target of the right, and they're not going to let that go. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
right, y'all. I'm back. I am back. I am back. Okay. Let's see what's going on in the Twitter world. Let's see what's going on in the Twitter world. Do we have... Any breaking news? It looks like no. No breaking news. Okay. Let's talk about Kanye West. Here's an interesting question. How many votes did Kanye West get for president? Now, he wasn't messing around. He went on Joe Rogan to talk about his candidacy, his campaign for president. Um, there were many, many news articles about it early on when he came up with the idea originally. He, he got COVID, dragged his feet, didn't get on the ballot in a lot of states. I think he may have been on in a handful, but uh, he didn't get on the ballot in the overwhelming majority of states. And so he kind of tweaked his campaign and said, you know what, I'm going to make it I'm going to make it a writing campaign. And so by the time he went on Rogan, that's what he was pushing for, you know, write me in for president. Um, And he's already talking about 2024. He's already saying, yeah, I'm probably going to run in 2024. So how did his campaign go this time? Well, he got, at least, to be fair, this came out, I believe, two or three days after the election. So nowhere near done counting all the votes. So this actually is not the final number, but at least... On day two or day three, when a lot of the votes had been counted, where most of the the overwhelming majority of the votes had been counted, he won 60,000 votes. 60,000 votes. Kanye, that's embarrassing. (laughs) That's really embarrassing. You know, I tweeted this the other night, and some people thought I was being incredibly arrogant which is half true, but if I had launched a write-in campaign, I could have gotten more than 60,000 votes. 60,000? That's it. 60,000. 60,000. Nothing. That's absolutely nothing. In fact, I'll give you some more information on this. The third-party votes. I said uh, in the 2020 election, the Green Party got 350,000 votes, the Libertarians got 1.7 million. Now, overall, that's a tick down because in 2016, the Greens got 1.4 million. That was Jill Stein. And the Libertarians got 4.4 million. That was Gary Johnson. So it went down. You had Joe Jorgensen for the Libertarians and, and Howie Hawkins this time around. Their vote count went down massively. Again, 350,000 for the Greens, 1.7 million for the Libertarians in 2020. But they still absolutely draxed Kanye West with, like, no celebrity power, no media coverage at all, no hype about the initial launching of their campaigns. They beat Kanye West, which is kind of hilarious. (laughs) Now, by the way, I wouldn't be able to get through this segment without telling you guys about the funny thing I realized the other night. So Vermont releases all of the, the write-in 
candidate. Well, not they're not candidates. Vermont releases all of the people that were written in by their voters. There you go. That's the best way to phrase it. Um, and so you see everybody, like, you know, if somebody votes for Scooby-Doo, somebody votes for George W. Bush, like, they release all of them. And so the number one write-in, of course, was Bernie Sanders. Um, I believe Tulsi Gabbard was up there, too. But by the way, the numbers are incredibly tiny. I forget how many for Bernie. It was under 1,000 write-in votes for Bernie. Um, Same thing. I think it might have been 100 or so for Tulsi, something along those lines. Um, But I had a good time. I was reading through it because I'm like, let me see how creative people get. And as I'm reading through it, I found my name. (laughs) So shout out to the person in Vermont who wrote me in for president. I appreciate you very much. Um, They spelled my name wrong, though, which makes it even more hilarious. And actually, I don't know if it was the, the voter who spelled my name wrong, because that seems ridiculous. If you know me enough and like me enough to vote me, to write me in for president, you're going to spell my name right. That leads me to believe that, you know, whoever is responsible or whatever machine is responsible for, you know, reading the writing didn't get it, didn't get it right. And so the way they spelled my name was K-U-L-E, Cool Kalinsky. It's kind of not a bad nickname at all. Cool Kalinsky. Um, so shout out to the person in Vermont who wrote me in. I got a grand total of one vote in Vermont. I would love it if all the states released their write-ins so I could see how many votes I got across the country. I wish we would know. We're never going to know because they don't all release the write-in names. Um, but if we did, I would place the over-under at 100. Did I get more or less than 100 votes around the country? It would be interesting to find out. I, I'm almost wishing I did a write-in campaign just to see if I, could be, if I actually would have beaten Kanye. If I launched a write-in campaign, I think I would have beaten 60,000 votes. I do. I do. 60,000 is really not that much at all. I mean, that's really... And if I was serious about it and I pushed it a lot, I could get over 100,000. Man, Kanye, you're so sad. Because the thing that's so annoying about it is that it's not about policy at all with him. Like, there's nothing... He doesn't actually want to do anything in terms of the direction of the country policy-wise. It's me, 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 me. And it's like he saw how Trump was able to get elected just coasting off of sheer narcissism. And so he's like, I got more narcissism than anybody I've ever met. So it's going to be me. I'll do the same thing. And, you know, this is the result. The result is uh, there's got to be something that connects. Like it wasn't, yes, Trump made it off narcissism, but he also kind of had a decent instinct for reading the room. And he did have some, you know, half-baked political philosophy somewhat like paleoconservative, you know, so he did tap into something real. It was different, especially because the establishment Republicans were so hopeless. Kanye is just a lost soul. That's what it strikes me as. And I do actually feel bad for him from time to time because it does seem like he needs help and he's not getting it. And if anything, his delusions are being fed repeatedly. Well, now, you know, I wonder how he feels about this. He's pro- my guess is he's, he's gone into some defensive protect the ego mode where he'll try to like explain it away and 
not make himself feel like shit, but I kind of wish he has a moment where he reflects on this and he's like, wow, I'm embarrassing. But I don't know if that's going to come because that doesn't strike me as uh, in his character. But anyway, there you have it. Kanye West got obliterated. Let's see if he runs in 2024, which he says he will, so he probably will. Um, I wonder if he'll be smart enough to just hop in as a Republican or a Democrat. You know, like third party people, I love you, but let's not pretend like even even if I grant you, okay, this is a project we should be exploring. You have to admit that it's a multi-decade project before you're even remotely viable. You know what I mean? So since that's the fact, if you're going to run now, you'd be insane not to run as a Democrat or a Republican. It would be literally insane because you're just not going to win. You're just wasting your time unless you literally go into it saying, I'm a messaging candidate, right? So let's see if he's smart enough to hop in as a Democrat or Republican. Knowing him, he'll do some weird shit, like he'll try to revive the Whig party or something, (laughs) or the Bull Moose party, and he'll be like, I'm running as a Bull Moose, because I'm a genius. And a lot of people around him will be like, that is pretty genius, I have to hand it to him. Okay, next. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy spoke to Axios, and um, he fired some shots at certain high-profile Democrats. So you, the cycle, raised more money than any House Republican ever, more than any of your speaker predecessors What did you learn, and how did you pull this off? Well, the best way to raise money is just let Nancy Pelosi and AOC talk. So you bring up a relatively junior member, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Why do your people respond so vociferously to her? Well, she runs the floor. What do you mean by that? That wing of the party, the socialist wing of the party, they are the new power of the Democratic Party. More so than Speaker Post. Oh, by far, by far. You watched on the floor. Legislation couldn't be passed unless AOC agreed with it. That is the least true thing anybody has ever said in human history. I'll give you just one example, and this says it all. Probably the number one policy on AOC's list and my list, or if it's not her number one, it's within the top three or five, okay? Medicare for all. We can't even get a vote on Medicare for All in a Democratic House of Representatives. So Pelosi controls it. We can't even get a vote on Medicare for All. 70% of the country wants Medicare for All. Over 80%, probably 90% of Democrats want Medicare for All. We can't even get a vote on Medicare for All. This is one of her top policy priorities. We can't even get a vote on it. And you're telling me legislation doesn't get through without Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Are you kidding me? By the way, I don't even think her, the main piece of legislation that she has proposed, I don't even think that's gotten a vote yet. The one, like the first one, I don't know if it was the first one, but it was one of the first ones that she signed on, her name onto, where it was her and Bernie, and they did the, they wanted to stop basically loan sharking, where they said, I think it's 12% interest is the max that any bank can charge you. An idea that's so popular that 
Tucker Carlson on Fox News even gave a credit and said, listen, I think conservatives should be pushing for stuff like this. Stop banks from ripping off regular people. I don't think that got a vote on it. I don't think that got a vote either. Legislation doesn't get through without her. Are you kidding me? I wish. I wish. The left wishes. We wish that the Democratic Party was the Democratic Party that the Republicans think it is. We wish all those attack ads on Joe Biden from Trump were real, were true, that Joe Biden is some sort of hardcore lefty, because then we might actually get something done in this country. Then we might actually follow in the footsteps of one of the most successful presidents of all time, FDR, who was a social Democrat and who was so popular he won four times. And one of the elections, he won 48 out of 50 states. He won all but two. I mean, come on, man. I don't like this. I'm just, it's so annoying. These people are so annoying and they're so disconnected from reality. They don't know or they know and they don't care about internal Democratic Party politics. So when he says, oh, the way for me to raise money is to let Nancy Pelosi and AOC talk and that's how I raise money. Those, those philosophies are diametrically opposed. So you're saying they're both bad because they're both Democratic, but that makes no sense. Like, which thing is the thing that really fires up the Republican base. I mean, listen, Nancy Pelosi is the one who's in all the ads. Whenever Republicans have attack ads, they put Nancy Pelosi in there. You know? Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, oftentimes they take things she says and, and twist it and take it out of context or focus whenever she goes like social justice warrior they could focus on those comments because that's easy to malign and, and make fun of. But fact of the matter is, if you get Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about economics, she's going to run circles around these people. She's going to run circles around them, and she's going to make them look like fools. And by the way, this is why I've always argued, if you're on the left, you've got to put front and center economics, put front and center, it's the populism, stupid, that even resonates with Republicans. When you talk about universal health care, are you kidding me? I mean, you bait the Republicans into disagreeing that every American should have health care. Do you realize how stupid they look when you do that? I mean... You're a political juggernaut and you're ironclad if you bait your opponents into making ridiculously shitty arguments. And that's what the left could do if they put front and center all the economic issues which matter the most. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they veer off track and sometimes we get lost in the, you know, the field of abolish ICE and defund the police. And then you're not working on your grounds where you're 70%, 80% popularity. All of a sudden you're now 40% according, you know, depending on which poll you look at. So... He doesn't know or he doesn't care about internal Democratic politics. He just thinks, ah, they're all bad because they're all Democrats. Nancy Pelosi is the out-of-touch elitist who's controlling the Democratic Party, who makes it a corporate party. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the left-flank upstart. And I wish she had as much power as they're making it sound like she does. I will give them one point, though. He wasn't making a distinction in terms of actual power in the party, but... Pelosi controls the party. The corporatists control the party. Full stop. In terms of the actual people, yes, AOC has their support. The socialist wing, as they call it, they, they support her. And the reason they support her is because they support Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, Green New Deal, so on and so forth. So, yes, in terms of popularity, in terms of the people, they're with her. But they're not with Nancy Pelosi. And it's not the case that, she, that AOC controls legislation, because I got news for you. If that was true, 
the Democratic Party would be a hell of a lot more popular. If, if AOC got to control the agenda and she puts Medicare for all at the top of that list, we'd start seeing another situation just like FDR when he won four times. All of a sudden, people will go, hey, you know, these Democrats are actually really helping me and materially improving my life. Hey, I was going to go bankrupt because of medical bills. Now I'm not. Hey, I have health coverage before I didn't. Hey, my wages just went up. Hey, I'm part of a union now, and the union gives me better benefits and paid vacation time. If the left were to control policy and control the party, people like Kevin McCarthy would have no hope. They'd be destroyed. They'd be obliterated. They would. So, you know, I wish, dude, I wish. I absolutely wish. And again, final point, what I would say to AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, the left flank, we're a juggernaut and we're unstoppable if you put front and center economics, if you put front and center the populism. And then not only are you popular with your own party, that's when you actually start chipping away from the Republican voters. The politicians are corrupt and they're beyond hope. But you actually can get a decent number of Republican voters on your side if you put the economics front and center. And then you're really talking about landslide wins from now until the end of time. So he better thank his lucky stars that she's not in control of the party. And he better thank his lucky stars that she hasn't discovered the path to endless Democratic victories, which is, like I said, put front and center the issues where we're popular. Soon as she figures that out, it's over for you bitches. Mm. All right, now we got John Ossoff, 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 Ossoff. The Democrats' hope in the Senate comes down to two runoff elections in Georgia. Um, Now, they're going to be on January 5th, and one of those elections is a guy by the name of John Ossoff, Ossoff, however you say it, this dude right here, um, he's running against David Perdue, a guy who's massively corrupt, and there's been stories on his corruption that have broken within the past year or so. Now, uh, Ossoff spoke to Axios and explained his positions in like a rapid-fire segment here. Let's take a look. People want to know what kind of person they're voting for, but I think they also want to know what policies that person supports, what you would do, what you would vote for if you were elected. Let me just do a speed round with you. Okay. Again. Do you support the Green New Deal? No. Do you support Medicare for All? No. Do you support D.C. statehood? Yes. Do you support Puerto Rican statehood? Yes. Do you support defunding the police? No. Do you support abolishing ICE? No. Do you support expanding the Supreme Court? No. Do you support ending the filibuster? Maybe. Okay, hold on. Just finishing up with my notes. This really frustrates me. And this frustrates me because on a lot of those answers, not all of them, but on a lot of those answers, he's against the more popular position. And on some of those answers, he's for the least popular position. But notice the snap answer. This shows you where he thinks conventional wisdom is. But it's only conventional wisdom among corporate Democrats who are insanely out of touch. Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, 
the donor class. This is who he's pleasing when he says that stuff. Now, they think, oh, but we're electoral geniuses, and this is going to help us in elections. Really? Do you not see what just happened? Did you not see that the Democrats lost seats in the House? Did you not see that in the Senate, it was a 75% chance the Democrats were supposed to take over the Senate, and now we'll be lucky if we take over the Senate? It comes down to these runoff elections, and even if they're won, we're still barely getting over the finish line? 50, 50 or 51 votes, whatever it is? Medicare for all, 70% popularity. And he's casually like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not for that. Green New Deal. The original polls on it were like 80, 85% popularity. It's gone down since because I think they botched the rollout of it. But, I mean, Green New Deal, the fact that Democrats haven't embraced it and also made the parallels to the New Deal, one of the most popular, you know, government initiatives ever in U.S. history, this drives me crazy, man. And then he takes D.C. statehood, and Puerto Rican statehood. Now, on the merits of that, there's a much longer conversation to be had. Maybe he's correct on the substance of it. But these are not the ones that are polling at 70%, 80%. For the love of God, dude. For the love of God. Corporate Democrats are so in their own bubble and up their own asses. And listen, what percentage of this is him trying to please his donors and his donors being you know, big money interests who are against Medicare for all or, and things of that nature? I don't know. Maybe, maybe a decent percentage of this is that. But... Even from, and this is my main point, even from just a messaging perspective, the fact that he hasn't figured out what the correct answer is to get us to victory, it drives me crazy. Honestly, it's a miracle in the race against Purdue. And granted, Purdue is one of the worst, but he lost. Purdue got like 49.9%. If he got over 50, there would have been no runoff election. He's lucky to get to a runoff. He got 47 or something, or something along those lines. You lost. You got fewer votes than David Perdue. How do you get fewer votes than a super corrupt, even in Georgia, how do you get fewer votes than an obviously corrupt loser? Because you're not, are you firing up your people when you talk like this? Of course you're not. Of course you're not. Democrats still haven't figured out, substance aside, that if you run and tell people, I'm going to give you and your family health care, and you're never going to go bankrupt from medical bills, you're never going to have to worry about medical bills again, we're going to catch up to the rest of the developed world and have health care for everybody. Tens of millions of people lost their health care. I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to protect you. I'm going to fix it. That is a popular message. It's a popular message to say, I want to give people jobs. I want to create millions of jobs in this new green and renewable technology sector. We're going to get the patents that the world's going to come to us for the technology of the future, for the energy of the future. This is popular. Make an argument, but you have to believe in it to make an argument. And he doesn't believe in it because he's cut from the same cloth as the rest of them. Now, listen, I'm not saying there's, you know, oh, there's no difference between Ossoff and Purdue. Of course there is. Purdue literally is one of the most corrupt that there is, okay? And there's been a lot of reporting on that recently. And also I saw today that one of the differences is if, if Ossoff, wins, and if the other Democrat wins in this election, that's a billion dollars more coming into the state of Georgia, um, and it'll help go to education and other things. The Republicans are saying no to that aid for Georgia, so Ossoff and the other Democrat would say yes to that aid for Georgia. That changes a lot of people's lives. So it's not like he's as bad as Purdue. Of course he's not. But the point is, for the love of God, we need to destroy the corporatists. I'm not saying unifies. This is what AOC does all the, oh, why are, why are you feeding into Republican framing? We need to unify. 
Unify with what? Complete corporate corrupt hacks? No. You need to defeat the corporatists. I don't want any more corporatists in the Democratic Party because the people, the people are not corporatists. The actual Democratic voters, the American people, they're not pro-corruption. They're not pro-corporatism. This is a party that's been taken over by donors and billionaires and moneyed interests. And that's one of the reasons why he feels like he has to say what he has to say. And again, I do think they're silly enough to have convinced themselves that this is strategically brilliant. Somehow Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are strategic geniuses, even though they massively underperformed in an election against Donald Trump and this Republican Party. And it's largely their fault, because what do they do? They love making, they love doing that distinction, right? They love saying, like, oh, Trump is bad, but other Republicans are great. Other elected Republicans are great. They're the good Republicans. Well, congratulations. So Trump goes down, barely, and then other Republican politicians do much better than expected, probably because you were also telling people they're not that bad. It drives me crazy, man. How are you, you're running to be in the Senate, and you put your middle finger up to over 80% of your own party, your own voters. No, I'm not for, for Medicare for all. No, I'm not for the Green New Deal. This idea, Democrats always have to run away from the things that should be their positions, scared of their own shadow. Again, some of this is I, they have to please the donors, but a lot of it also is strategically they think this is savvy. It's savvy to take unpopular positions. Again, snap answer yes on Puerto Rico, uh, yes on D.C. statehood. Snap answer no on Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. By the way, this one might get me in a little trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. Listen, it's true. Um, running on abolishing ICE, running on defunding the police, not going to work. Not going to work. Those are not popular. Sorry, they're not. There's just some, some tough love and some medicine here for the left. Am I saying substantively these things are wrong? In terms of abolishing ICE, they are literally running slavery camps at the border, where there's lawsuits over it, and it's been found that they have merit, that they're doing forced labor. And you already have Customs and Border Protection, which handles the border, to have ICE. It's unnecessary to have ICE, and it's a new agency that was created in the early 2000s. So substantively, I'm not saying it's wrong. In fact, I think the left is right on abolish ICE. Um, but you don't run on that. You don't run on your least popular fucking positions. How do I have to explain these things? It's, it's so annoying that I have to explain these things. These things should be obvious. Um, so I don't disagree with him on that. I don't disagree with him on running on defunding the police. Um, that is something that the Republicans have capitalized on and it has helped them. Um, but the final point, and really what is ultimately a white flag, is expanding the Supreme Court and ending the filibuster. For him to basically say, he said maybe for the filibuster, he said no for expanding the Supreme Court. What I need everybody to understand is that means that that's it. Like, that's it. It's over. So we're only going to be able to get as much change as a 6-3 conservative court allows. And a 6-3 conservative court might even slap down your shitty neoliberal half measures. You know, so that's something that these people haven't reckoned with or they don't care. They either don't realize that the court is going to slap down a lot of progress or they realize it and they just don't care because it's just more about I want to be a senator. So I don't really care what gets done. I just want to be a senator. So I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But either way, it's pathetic. Democrats are always asked to vote for people who want to half agree with Republicans. And it's like, can, for the love of God, can you just give me somebody who believes the things that I believe? You know, could you just 
give me a candidate who I know is going to fight for the things that I want them to fight for. And I, I'm telling you, they'll trot out the same old arguments. Oh, it's Georgia. You don't understand Georgia. Georgia, you know, is not as far left as you think it is and blah, 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 blah. And for the love of God, those arguments never make sense because every time you go to the actual polling data, it's overwhelming for all the policy positions that we love. For living wage, for Medicare for all, you name it. It's always through the roof. And then you got guys like this. No, I'm not for Medicare for all. No, I'm not for a Green New Deal. On top of being wrong substantively, he should be for those things. He's also an idiot strategically. Even if you weren't for those things, I'd say, you should tell people you're for those things. I'm against universal health care in the middle of a pandemic. Congratulations on being a complete moron. FDR is rolling over in his grave looking at this Democratic Party, who always want to compromise on the compromise to the compromise. Go further right, further right, further right, and they think it's politically savvy. It's not savvy. You're an idiot, and you believe in nothing, and nothing's going to get done, and it's going to be your fault. Okay. Oh, Joe Manchin time. Here we go. Joe Manchin ran to Fox News after the election to assure them that no change is coming to America. He told them that um, he's definitely against eliminating the filibuster. He said he's definitely against expanding the Supreme Court, which, again, would mean it's a 6-3 conservative court, which means the only change we get is change that they allow. And they would say a lot of stuff is unconstitutional. That's basic progressive change, basic positive change. Um, So he said those things, and then he went on to say this. for the 17th Circuit. I'm not going to break precedent. So if I can take that type of pressure, if I can vote for Brett Kavanaugh, the only Democrat, if I can take that type of pressure, you don't think that I can basically justify what I'm going to be doing and how I'm going to vote, knowing that I'm sitting in the seat that Robert C. Byrd held, who wrote the rules of the Senate? This is an institution... And you wouldn't become a Republican. You don't need most of the Democrat, whether you're D or not, right? I'm a, I'm a proud, moderate, conservative Democrat. Maybe there's not many of us left, but I can tell you this country wants a moderation. This country, you run your life, you run your business from the middle, not from the fringes. And that's where I've always been. So for something, whatever the message was, it was wrong for this many people to be split, for us not to be able to have a message that didn't scare the bejesus out of people. And when you're talking about basically Green New Deal and all this socialism, that's not who we are as a Democratic Party. It's not how I was raised in West Virginia. It's not the Democrats I know. But yet we've been tagged. If you have a D by your name, you must be for all the crazy stuff, and I'm not. Don't you love it how Democrats completely agree with Republican framing on left-wing ideas? Don't you love that? This guy's a Democrat. By the way, I don't remember the exact number, so don't quote me on this, but I think it was at 538. I think 538. Was it 538? Whatever. One of these websites has a counter of, like, how often people vote with Trump. If I'm not mistaken, Joe Manchin was over 50%, may have been over 60% of the time he votes with Donald Trump. West Virginia Democrat. And in his mind... He thinks the way that I show I'm a serious person is to be more corporate, be more pro-establishment, as if like West Virginia, the people in West Virginia only want their 
their congresspeople and their senators and their politicians to be more corporate and more corrupt. No, I'm pretty sure that the West Virginia Democrats, I'm sure on social issues, they probably are conservative. They're probably pro-gun. They're probably anti-abortion. But on economic stuff, there's a rich labor history in West Virginia. They want hardcore lefties on economic stuff. Now, they might not realize it's, it's a left thing, but yes, labor unions and protecting the rights of workers, these are left ideas. These are social democratic ideas. So really, if, if Joe Manchin was representing the people of West Virginia, he would be probably conservative on social issues, anti-abortion, pro-gun, but he would be one of the furthest left on economic issues among the Democrats. He would be insanely pro-union. He would be pro-universal health care, Medicare for all. He'd be pro-free college and a living wage and things of that nature. Instead, he's just the one who agrees with Republicans the most. He brags. He says, oh, I voted for Amy Coney Barrett for a lower court. He didn't for the Supreme Court, thank God. But the reasoning he said was, oh, the process. Uh, the process has been muddled. We've never done it with this little time left before the election. So in other words, he made McConnell, he, he stuck by the McConnell rule. Oh, in the last year before an election, you don't put a, a Supreme Court justice on. So that's why he did what he did. But he voted for Brett Kavanaugh. He voted for Neil Gorsuch. These are insanely conservative justices. He describes himself, I'm a moderate conservative Democrat. He goes, moderate conservative Democrat. And then he takes his shots at Green New Deal and socialism. This isn't who we are. This isn't the Democratic Party. I know. Green New Deal bad. Socialism bad. This fact I will keep repeating until I'm blue in the face and dead. FDR was our social democratic president. FDR got elected four times. He was so popular, the country couldn't stop electing him. He was so popular, Republicans came up with term limits to say, if we don't have term limits, we might never beat these guys. Because the American people love them because they keep helping them. They keep doing good things. The New Deal is socialism. And this guy's, oh, there's no history of socialism in the Democratic Party. Green New Deal, gross. Remember that New Deal? Remember the New Deal and how wildly popular and successful it was? This is what we're trying to do with the Green New Deal. Not him running away from it at 1,000 miles an hour. And I love, again, the casual framing of the right. Oh, people think because you have a deep by your name, you must be in favor of all these crazy things. Well, I'm not. What do they consider crazy things, man? And th listen, this is where I'm a little different from others in that I do make a distinction between the social issue stuff and the economic stuff. I do think that running on something like defunding the police or abolishing ICE is not going to work. And I do have questions on the substance of that as well. Now, that's another conversation for another day. But point is, notice the trick. Notice what they've done. Not in this clip necessarily, but I've seen it in others where they lump in stuff like abolishing ICE and defunding the police, and they throw it in with Medicare for All, for example. They throw it in with free college. They throw it in with a living wage or a Green New Deal. And it's like, no, these are actually, they're not the same thing. And some of these things poll over 70%, over 80%. They're incredibly popular. But Manchin runs away from all of it. And just so everybody understands, the message he's sending right now is, under a Biden president, presidency, nothing will get done through the Senate. That's the message he's sending. He's telling Republicans, relax, I'm pretty much with you. Every now and then I might not be, but the overwhelming majority of the time, I'm with you. So this means that 
whatever good Joe Biden gets done, and it's questionable just how much good he even wants to get done, because ideologically he's not with me. He's a moderate Republican ideologically. To the left of Joe Manchin, but not crazy to the left of Joe Manchin, um, the most good he'll do is through executive orders. The most good he'll do is that path. I don't see much getting through the House. I don't see much getting through the Senate. Because this is Joe Manchin telling everybody, relax. Nothing will fundamentally change. That's the argument. He's making the Biden argument. Remember when Biden said that to a bunch of donors? Guys, relax. Nothing will fundamentally change. That's what he's doing here. That's exactly what he's saying here. Nothing's going to fundamentally change. Filibuster is going to stay intact. We're not adding seats to the court, so it's going to be 6-3 conservative. I voted for Brett Kavanaugh. I voted for Gorsuch. I'm a moderate. I'm a conservative. I'm against Green New Deal. I'm against socialism. When Republicans win, they get Republican policy implemented. When Democrats win, we get Republican policy implemented. And you wonder why the left is so frustrated. Especially, again, especially knowing the history. Knowing that it wasn't always like this, guys. It was not. FDR got stuff done. Even LBJ got stuff done. They got stuff done. Now we have, you know, these people rolling over in their graves. Because we've had the Bill Clinton era, the Barack Obama era, where it's half measures on top of the half measures, because these guys are also corrupt and corporate. And so they think triangulating is correct. And they, substantively, they like triangulating. They like being moderate Republicans. So here we are. Now we have a moment in history where it's completely incompatible with corporatism and neoliberalism. Completely incompatible. We need fundamental radical change in this country. We need universal health care. We need a jobs program and an infrastructure deal. We need a Green New Deal to fight back against climate change. We have so many crises happening right now. 30% of the country can't pay rent or mortgage. And soon they'll be able to be evicted, foreclosed on. And this is the kind of Democratic Party that we're looking at. The one that signals we're going to basically agree with the Republicans. Ever since the money got into the system, this is the way the Democratic Party functions. Ever since the late 1970s, early 1980s, with the Supreme Court decisions that ruled that money equals free speech, and now you have corruption all throughout the system. It used to be the Democrats really only took lawyer money and union money. And then they started taking corporate money after those decisions. And we haven't had a moment of relief since where you felt like the Democrats were actually fighting for you. Haven't had a moment of it. And it's a nightmare. And now you see Joe Manchin already waving the white flag, already signaling to Republicans, I kind of agree with you. That's the whole point of the segment is to let Republicans know I'm on your side. I'll never get over the fact that the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and the media all try to make us feel crazy simply for saying, let's catch up to the rest of the developed world and have everybody health care and give everybody health care and make it free at the point of service. They try to make you feel crazy for saying, I want a living wage or I want universal health care or I want a jobs program or I want to end the wars. They try to make you feel crazy for that. 
You're not the crazy one. They're the crazy ones, and they're the corrupt ones. And eventually, some action will be taken because we can't, we can't let this continue. At some point, people will get so fed up that we will have a general strike, and we will protest for all those for all of those things that we know are the answers, for all of those basics that should be the case in a developed country. We should be a thriving social democracy. Eventually, the population is going to snap and say no more, and we'll fight back, because this status quo is certainly unsustainable. Vice News did an interesting piece on Trump's legal problems. Take a look at this. President Trump has never been shy about calling for his political enemies to be investigated, charged with crimes, and of course, locked up. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. But the moment Trump steps down, he loses the special protection from federal criminal indictment that's reserved only for the president. And prosecutors are already sifting through the big pile of evidence that independent legal experts say ranges from questionable to damning. The thing is, if they decide it warrants an indictment, that's not just Trump's problem. It's future President Biden's problem, too. He's staking his presidency on healing a divided nation. And if the 70 million people plus who voted for his opponent see their guy getting thrown in the clink, they might not take that well. Lock them all up. Biden says the decision will be made by an independent attorney general. I will not interfere with the Justice Department's judgment of whether or not they think they should pursue the prosecution of anyone that they think has violated the law. But I also am not president. It depends on what happens. But a decision not to prosecute in the name of national unity raises a different problem. It puts Trump and any former president above the law. That might encourage future presidents to lean into their worst instincts, break rules, commit crimes. Plenty of former prosecutors, including the vice president-elect, say that any fair-minded official would likely come to the same conclusion on Trump. Prosecute. I believe that they would have no choice and that they should, yes. But the next attorney general would only have a say in what federal prosecutors do. State prosecutors get to make their own call, including the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance, who's already probing Trump's financial affairs. His prosecutors have fought to the Supreme Court to look at Trump's tax returns. They seem to be going deep into Trump's business history and potential campaign finance issues. Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, has said Trump directed him to make illegal hush money payments to women who say they slept with Trump. Neither the White House nor Trump's company returned to press for comment. Cohen's also claims that the Trump family business fiddled with the valuations of its assets for insurance and tax purposes. There are also civil cases. E. Jean Carroll, a former magazine columnist, is suing Trump for defamation for denying her allegation that he raped her. And 1,000 former prosecutors say that former special counsel Robert Mueller's final report presents enough evidence for a federal indictment against Trump for obstruction of justice. Remember, Mueller's team didn't reach a final decision about whether Trump broke the law because it's DOJ policy that a sitting president can't be indicted anyway. 
This raises speculation that Trump might try to pull a Richard Nixon and resign early, and then get a preemptive pardon from his future former Vice President Mike Pence. But that wouldn't save Trump from the Manhattan prosecutor, who's investigating potential state crimes. Whatever happens, when you ask former prosecutors about this, they say if anyone is going to charge the President of the United States for the first time in our history, the case has got to be airtight. We'll have to be ironclad because otherwise we'll be playing right into the president's narrative that the Democrats have sought to undermine democracy, not to support it. We're in a really difficult spot because if prosecutors decide to pursue a case against him, they run the risk of falling right into his narrative that this is a witch hunt, that this is people who are after him, who always been after him. On the other hand, if we don't prosecute him, then we are running the risk of um, of defying this very central principle that no man is above the law. Trump is still the loudest voice in his party, and he's likely to remain a potent political force for years to come. Even becoming a convicted felon would not, technically speaking, prevent him from running again in 2024. And now that Florida has given convicted felons the right to vote again, he can even vote for himself. I definitely buy the 2024 idea. In fact, Mick Mulvaney, his former chief of staff, came out recently and said um, he's pretty much convinced that Trump is going to run in 2024. This is not a guy who handles rejection well. This is a guy who still thinks that this election was fraudulent, even though he lost relatively comfortably. Um, So I could see him not stop doing rallies. He'll continue to do rallies. He'll continue to rile up the base. He'll continue to be the darling of the hardcore Republican voters. And uh, he'll run in 2024, and he'll win. Who's going to stop him? Seriously, who's going to stop him? Mitt Romney is going to run for president again and beat Donald Trump? Not a chance in hell. Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley? Are you kidding me? They have no, no chance. So if he runs in 2024, assuming he's still alive, of course, if he runs in 2024, he would win. He would win. He'd win the primary, for sure. So, um... Now, there's a lot to say about this. I, you know, I find it weird they had this whole conversation and they didn't even bring up what happened in the previous administration. Namely, Barack Obama was faced with this same question of, well, hold on now. You have a bunch of criminals and thugs in the Bush administration who are guilty of a number of crimes. So what are you going to do about that? And by the way, not only were they not little crimes, they were even worse than the ones that they're talking about with Trump here, because we're talking about war crimes. You have an illegal war against a country that didn't attack us, where hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died, thousands of our own soldiers died. It's illegal even under international law. Um, You have torture. Torture is illegal and it's unconstitutional. We... We sentenced to death Japanese soldiers who tortured our, our soldiers during World War II. We sentenced them to death for torturing them, for waterboarding them. We did the same kind of torture and worse. So tortures and war criminals and Barack Obama famously said, we look forwards, not backward. That's what he said. And um, so you set the precedent then and there. Basically, no matter what, the president is above the law. Basically, 
doesn't matter what they do. And now you've made everything debatable. You've made everything a matter of opinion. So illegal wars, offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us, eh, if you're for it, it was just a mistake. It's just a mistake. You know, torture, eh, hey, I happen to be against it, but if you're for it, there's a difference of opinion. It's not like one of us is right and one of us is wrong, morally speaking, ethically speaking, legally speaking. No. It's a matter of opinion. Some people are for it. Some people are against it. What are you going to do? Spying. Spying on everybody. Clear violation of the Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Bush started doing that. Obama continued it. Illegal spying apparatus with the NSA. And now it's a matter of, hey, it's a matter of opinion. Oh, you're for spying. I'm against spying. It is what it is. It's just a gentleman's disagreement. Now it's all a matter of disagreement. And so you set that precedent And that leads me to believe it is very unlikely that Donald Trump will be brought to justice. However, however, and this is, I think this is actually really important. Trump has committed crimes way before he was president. And those crimes could be categorically different because presidents want to protect the presidency. And Obama probably thought, hey, if we prosecute Bush and some of his cronies, then I'll just be prosecuted when I leave office because Obama continued the drone war, for example, continued the war wars, continued the NSA spying. So he thought, hey, if I set this precedent, they're coming for me. So he didn't do it. But Donald Trump, not only was he a criminal in office, he also was a criminal before he got to office and a a pretty clear financial criminal. In fact, it's so clear he had to pay because... Trump University was a fraud. It was found in court that it was fraudulent. And so he had to pay people who had sued him over it. So he's already, he's guilty of committing fraud. That, that's a given. But also, there's a bunch of tax evasion that he was doing as well. And a bunch of lying to the government, lying to the IRS. Um, when it was convenient to him, he would overvalue his assets. When it was convenient, he would undervalue his assets. All to get out of paying a tax bill. And you do that long enough, they're going to find you and they're going to come after you and they don't mess around. We don't have debtor's prison in this country, so you don't go to prison if you owe money to a private company. But if you don't pay your taxes, they do throw you in prison. So in the case of Trump, I think that the stuff he did while in office, the illegal drone war, the continuing of the NSA spying, so on and so forth, that he'll get away with. What there's a chance he won't get away with is all the financial crimes or some of the financial crimes from before he was president. That there's a chance he doesn't get away with. Now, they bring up also, by the way, the illegal hush money payments that um, maybe came out of campaign funds when he paid you know, the women to shut up about it. I don't know if they'll get him for that because that's kind of tangentially related to the office of the presidency and it was campaigning and it's hard to get people on campaign finance violations because everything is so corrupt in this system. So I don't know if they'll get him on that. I don't know if they'll get him on violating the Emoluments Clause, which he clearly did. He, he made $73 million from foreign investors while president. That's sketchy, and he definitely did favors in return for that, whether it's with Saudi Arabia, Israel, or whoever. If you dig into the specifics of that, that's Corruption 101. That's a violation of the Emoluments Clause. Will he go down for that? Probably not, because, that's again, that's the office of the presidency, and presidents protect presidents. So I don't think he'd go down for that. If he goes down for anything... It would be something related to fraud, or it would be the tax evasion that he very clearly did. Remember, he owes hundreds of millions of dollars to banks, too. He's really, really in debt. But the only part of that that would really matter would be 
the back taxes that he owes and how he was lying to the government all along. That could be the thing that gets him. So it's kind of like, you know, the old Al, we got Al Capone on tax evasion type thing. It, it looks similar to that if Trump goes down for anything. But having said that, you know, Trump has a long history of kind of wiggling his way out of these sorts of jams. I mean, he lost the election, which is the first time ever that that tweet was wrong, the famous tweet of, you know, I forget exactly how it goes, but I'd like to see old Donnie wriggle his way out of this jam, huh? And then Donald Trump gets out easy, and then it's like, ah, well, nevertheless. The election loss was the first time that that tweet was wrong. Possible that financial crimes is the second time that tweet is wrong. And if he goes down for anything, that should be clear. It's also it's going to be the Manhattan DA who brings him down. It's not going to be the federal government. It's going to be the state. It's going to be New York State that brings him down, if anything. So, But I don't know. I really don't know how it's going to unfold. But it is an interesting conversation. And there's plenty of dirt there. There's plenty of smoke there. So there's definitely fire there. But um, who knows if they'll actually nab him because, again, the case has to be airtight. And... Um, it would have to be a way that he can't wiggle out of it, and he's pretty well known for wiggling out of stuff. So I don't know, but we'll see. We'll find out, and we may find out actually pretty soon since he just lost the election. He'll be out in January, and then in the next year or two, maybe three at most, something could happen. Okay. Let me take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the scary moves that Trump is making. Stay right there, everybody.
Son of a bitch. All right, y'all, we're back. We're back. By the way, there has been an executive decision made, and that decision is that the Wednesday show is now 11 o'clock, just like the Monday show. The Wednesday show is now 11 o'clock, just like the, the um, Monday show. So that has been, that's now official. It will not be moved around much anymore, if at all. So just wanted to give you guys that heads up. Um, all right. Still got some stuff to get to, so let's dive into it. I believe we're on story numero 10. Okay, here we go. President Trump has fired senior officials at the Pentagon. So this is from CNN. The Trump administration has carried out sweeping changes atop the Defense Department's civilian leadership structure, removing several of its most senior officials and replacing them with perceived loyalists to the president. The flurry of changes announced by the Department of Defense in a statement roughly 24 hours after President Donald Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper have put officials inside the Pentagon on edge and fueled a growing sense of alarm among military and civilian officials who are concerned about what could come next. Four senior civilian officials have been fired or have resigned since Monday, including Esper, his chief of staff, and the top officials overseeing policy and intelligence. They were replaced by perceived Trump loyalists, including a controversial figure who promoted fringe conspiracy theories and called former President Barack Obama a terrorist. A senior defense official told CNN late Tuesday that it appears we are done with the beheadings for now, referring to the wave of ousted civilian leaders, including Esper. So, I have a lot to say about this. First of all, don't shed a tear for Esper. I believe he was he was the leader of, um, was it Raytheon? One of the defense contractors. He was one of the top guys at one of the defense contractors. And really, he had no business ever being in the Department of Defense in the first place, because there's a massive conflict of interest. It's incredibly corrupt. There's that revolving door. Um, and these guys look for more war. They do, because they're people who they know and they've worked with forever, and the company that, companies they represent make a lot of money the more war there is. So do not shed a tear for Mark Esper. Do not shed a tear for him. It would be ridiculous to do that. Don't give me any of this BS like, welcome to the resistance. No, 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 no. Stop it, stop it, stop it. I get angry just thinking about it. Okay? So that's the first point. Second point is, there are, two, there are two possibilities here, two possibilities, and I'll give you both. First, I'll give you the scary one. The scary interpretation of this is, well, hold on now. You have a president who just lost re-election. He's disputing the results every day. Like, it's nonstop. His entire Twitter feed is like, this fraudulent election, not real, this is fake news, I'm, I actually won. Nonstop, nonstop. As the president is doing that, He's replacing all the top officials at the Pentagon. Does it look like a slow motion coup? Is that sketchy? If we saw some third world dictator doing that, wouldn't the U.S. immediately describe this as a coup attempt? Like, isn't that what this is? Replacing officials at the Pentagon as you're saying, no, this election's fraudulent, and you're putting all of your loyalists in positions that is incredibly sketchy. Listen, even if you don't buy that, you have to admit that the optics of it are terrifying. You have to admit that. Okay, so that's one of the schools of thought. 
The other school of thought is, and this is there's actually been reporting on this, that the reason Trump is firing all these people in the Pentagon is because finally, after four years, he grew a pair of balls and realized, oh shit, I ran on getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We're still in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these ghouls at the Pentagon are the people who are keeping us there and are most responsible for that. I want them gone, and I want somebody who's going to carry out what I want, which is to pull out of Afghanistan. Some people are saying, hey, it's verified that these officials at the Pentagon are most responsible for keeping us in these wars. And Trump wants to get out of these wars. Before he leaves office, he would like to have one positive thing on, you know, as part of his legacy, and ending the wars would be one of those things, or ending at least the war in Afghanistan. So that's why he's doing it. He wants to replace them with somebody who's actually going to listen to him as commander-in-chief when he says, hey, let's, do, let's get out. Now, which one of those things is true, or is it a mix? I really don't know, guys. I really don't know. And unfortunately, we all have to get somewhat comfortable with this sense of uncertainty, because anybody who tells you they know what's going on, they don't. Nobody really knows what's going on. Unless you're in the room when these decisions are being made, and we're not, then we just don't know. And it comes through an ideological lens, a biased lens, whether it's the media talking about it or a certain reporter or somebody from within the administration. You just don't know. You just don't know what's going on. So if he's firing them because he actually wants to get out of the wars and these guys are standing in the way, good. If he's firing them and replacing them with his loyalists because he's doing a slow-motion coup attempt and trying to get people as much in favor of him in high positions as possible, very bad. So I don't know what it is, um, but, you know, it's my job to come out here and tell you guys what's happening, and that is what's happening right now. And at the very least, you have to say the optics of it are terrifying. At the very least, you have to say that. Um, I guess we'll find out pretty soon if his move really is, let's actually pull out of Afghanistan, because then we'll be doing it, you know? And he's, he's, he announces, like, every six months, like, we're getting out, and then we just don't get out. So, I don't know. We'll see if he actually pulls out. But imagine he pulls out, and then Biden gets us right back in. Oh, my God. Oh, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The season finale of America is getting really scary. Okay, next. President Trump is shaking down his supporters one more time on his way out the door. Raw Story says that um, expert explains how Trump is using election fraud pack to fleece his supporters. So Trump supporters received emails that were aggressively urging them to donate to the president's legal fund so he has resources needed to fight the election results and try to overturn them so he wins. Now, they added a disclaimer. The disclaimer, quote, lays out that 60% of the contributions will first go to the new PAC up to the maximum contribution of $5,000. The remaining 40% goes to the RNC up to the maximum $35,500. If that first 60% of the donation exceeds $5,000, the remnants go to the campaign's recount, recount account. 
if the 40% exceeds the 35,500 RNC maximum, only then does it go to the RNC's legal defense fund. So in other words, a lot of the money, about half the money, is going to pay down Trump's debt. Now, is it campaign debt or personal debt? I don't know. I'm inclined to believe campaign debt. We don't know how much debt his campaign is in, but I, I think it would be he's using that money to pay down campaign debt. But it's incredibly misleading how they're sending out these emails. They're sending out these emails like, hey, donate to us. We need this to fight court battles to overturn the election, giving people hope that there's a chance. There's no chance. It's over. The election's over. But giving his supporters hope that there's a chance and then taking half that money and just paying down the campaign debt. So it's kind of like a fraudulent email. He's lying to them. I mean, I guess with the fine print, he technically gets out of it, and then it's not a lie. It's just very misleading. But this is such a Trump thing to do, man. Even on the way out the door, he can't shake his roots. His roots as a con artist, as a scam guy. I like what Tim Dillon says about this. He says that Trump is the most successful con artist of all time. I think it's true. I think it's true. He was able to get to the White House. Being the guy who did Trump University, man, I know we don't, like, there's so much craziness that goes on on a regular basis that we oftentimes forget that the president of the United States ran a fake scam university where it went to court and he was found guilty. He had to pay out to people who sued him. This is the president of the United States, and now he's doing a very similar thing here on the way out the door. Oh, yeah, we're going to fight it, so you got to donate. you got no choice. you got to donate. you got to donate. you got to donate. I need your, we need the money. We need the money. We need the money. And then half of it's going to pay down the debt from his campaign, and maybe even his personal debt. I don't know. I w- I'm assuming the campaign debt here. Maybe some of his personal debt, too. And he's, just so everybody knows, because we learned about this with the tax returns, he's in a lot of debt, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of debt. So when he's out of office, the first thing he should do, and it seems like they're, talks, they're in talks to do it, Jared Kushner was shopping this idea around, is start Trump TV. And there's even whispers of he's going to take Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity to go to the new Trump TV and try to take on Fox News directly. So I don't know, man. It's all up in the air. It's all kind of crazy. But this is exactly what I would expect from Donald Trump on the way out the door. Screwing his supporters yet again and this time in a more direct, old-school financial way, similar to his Trump University scam. Okay, next. I already told you guys how direct ballot initiatives really were good the other night on election night. Um, We got marijuana won on every single ballot it was on. Legalizing all drugs won in Oregon. Uh, Decriminalizing magic mushrooms won in one or two places. I know D.C. is one. I don't remember the other one. Um, It was a clean sweep for the correct position on the direct ballot initiatives. In Florida, we had over 60%. Voted to raise the minimum wage, so now the Florida minimum wage is going to be raised. Amazing. I mean, this stuff is just great. I did miss some, though. I missed some other direct ballot initiatives. Uh, I learned about them today, and I can't wait to share this with you. Colorado voters have approved a new paid family and medical leave law. The measure 
have the support of 57% of voters as of 9.30 p.m. with a sizable lead of nearly 400,000 votes. Under Proposition 118, Colorado would require that employers provide 12 weeks of paid time off for childbirth and family emergencies. Eight other states in Washington, D.C. have created similar programs in the last two decades. I am happy for the workers of Colorado, said State Senator Faith Winter, a paid leave proponent. The new law will ensure that mothers don't have to return to work mere days after giving birth, she said, and that cancer patients can take time to heal. Twelve weeks paid vacation. That is so awesome. Overwhelmingly passed, 57%, 400,000 vote lead. Probably will be more when all is said and done. That's awesome. I have more for you. Arizona voters approved a tax measure this week that will raise rates for the state's wealthiest households. Known as Proposition 208, the measure aims to essentially set up a fifth income tax bracket for wealthy residents that would raise the top rate to 8% from 4.5% through an additional 3.5% tax on incomes above $250,000 and $500,000 for joint filers. The tax is expected to raise an estimated $940 million per year, and revenue would be used for education-related expenses. So they voted directly on raising taxes a little bit for people who make over $250,000 and using that money to help fund the school system. Passed. It passed. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it passed. It's almost like 80%, maybe even 90% of the time, you put something up for a direct vote, People are really reasonable, and they pick the position that makes sense. God, I love direct democracy. Again, you always need to have a constitution along with it to take rights off the table. Say, hey, you can't touch these. Can't touch them. But everything else, yeah, why shouldn't it be open to the will of the people? Why shouldn't it be? I love this stuff, man. I really, really love this stuff. So marijuana was a clean sweep. Minimum wage won. Paid uh, family leave and medical leave one, raising taxes on the wealthy run one, and giving that money to the school system one. I'll tell you what, I will take the American people over the corrupt corporate politicians in America any day of the week. Okay, now let me do one more quick segment. For those of you who are just joining us now and clicking in now, the show started at 11 o'clock. Eastern Time. Um, So we're wrapping up here. You can watch it from the beginning as soon as we're done or listen from the beginning as soon as we're done. Um, From now on, the Wednesday show will always be at 11 a.m. Okay, it'll always be at 11 a.m. We won't be moving it around much anymore, if at all. So Monday at 11, Wednesday at 11. Anyway, just wanted to tell you guys that if you're joining us now, you know, you just tuned in or whatever. Um, All right, final thing real quick, and then we'll wrap it up. Lilith Penn is uh, quite literally the first ever Secular Talk fan, listener, supporter. Um, She was listening when it was just me talking to myself. Again, quite literally. She was like the first person tuning in when I was just talking to myself and babbling, and nobody really cared what I had to say. And she heard me talk, and she's like, oh, he's interesting, but let me listen. And she's been a, a loyal, loyal listener ever since. She helps with this show massively in a number of ways. Um, and she just recently had a, a, a terrible thing happen. Now, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times because she also just got married. 
She got married recently. The guy seems like a great guy. Um, and unfortunately, it was soon after that that her father passed away. Her father had um, he had some health problems, and then unfortunately, this is a very common story around the United States of America these days, but he then also had got COVID-19, and he, he couldn't fight it off, and he ended up passing away. And, you know, she, she loved him very much, and so it's a really, really difficult time for her right now, her and her family. She's, she has a, you know, lovely family. I, her kids are, are great. They're probably the youngest Secular Talk listeners in the country, or they started listening when they were really, really young. Um, and anyway, uh, they, they mean a lot to me. They do. And it, uh, it broke my heart when I heard that her dad died. And just like most people in today's day and age, everybody's struggling to get by financially. And so can't afford the funeral. Can't afford it. And so I wanted to come out here for you guys and, and just ask if, if you can spare a donation of a dollar, $2, $3 if you want to go nuts, um, and donate to the fund for her dad's funeral. Uh, I know she would really, really appreciate it. By the way, she hates asking for anything. And so it's not even her that set up this GoFundMe. It's friends and a, a church was involved. So she, she doesn't want to do this. She hates doing stuff like this, okay? But, you know... She's in a tough spot right now, and it would be really great if people could help out, donate a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. I'm going to leave the GoFundMe in the video description box below. And again, if, if, you, if you have the ability, if you don't, it's okay. I know it's tough out there for everybody these days, but uh, if you have the ability, a dollar, two dollars, or three dollars really will go a long way. And, um, you know, it's, it's the, really the worst thing in the world that at such a terrible time, People have to worry about money, you know. A tragedy like this hits, and it's like, oh, there's also the reality of you need money to get through it, and if you don't have it, you're screwed. It's a really tough thing, man, and honestly, it's one of the reasons why I feel so passionate about something like Medicare for All. Nobody should have to worry about going bankrupt from medical bills. You know, that shouldn't be a thing. It should be taken care of. We got all this money for fighter jets that we don't need, Wall Street bailouts, going to corrupt assholes, but we can't give people health care. We can't give people education. We can't wipe the debt slate clean. It drives me crazy. Our priorities are all messed up in this country. But listen, unfortunately, we are where we are. She had a tragedy, and this happened. So, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you guys could help her out. She definitely deserves it. It's a shame that we're even in a position where, you know, we have to ask. No, nobody wants to, to be in a position like this, but um, if, if you could help it, I'd really appreciate it, and I know she would as well. So anyway, um, thank you guys. If you can't help, it's okay. I know it's tough for a lot of people out there as well, but figured um, we'd throw this out there and see, see if it helps. All right, guys. I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good rest of the day. Peace.